0: Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at christfellowshipnc.org. Well, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 16 as we finish up Hebrews 4 this morning. So as always, let me read our passage for us and then we will take a moment to pray together and to ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of his word together. So Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Father, as we pray every week, we pray once more that you would be at work in us through the truth of your word. We pray that you would accomplish the very thing you're calling us to this morning, that we would have confidence to come before the throne of grace. Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit at work in us, through the truth of your word, that we would see more and more, of the, uh, more and more of the glories of your name, that we would see more and more of the glories of Christ and what he has accomplished for us in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And in the life he now lives as he has passed through the heavens and is seated at your right hand. Father, I pray that you would fix our eyes on things above this morning, that you would, by the power of your word, be at work in us, shaping us and conforming us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And so, Fathers, we pray every week, I pray again that you would guide us this morning, that you would lead us into truth, that you would protect all of us from being led astray. And that you would allow me to only speak what is true of you, what is true of your word. And I pray that your people would be helped as they seek to pursue you and to pursue holiness and obedience to you for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the author of Hebrews wrote this letter, or uh, some believe it to be a sermon. But regardless, it was delivered to uh, the people in written form, and the author of Hebrews delivered this this letter as a passionate plea to God's people to not give up on Jesus. Right? You can see that throughout. Right? Even at this early stage of the church, one roughly one lifetime from the death of Christ, there were already threats to God's people, both within the church and outside of the church. The church was already facing immense pressures of false teachers cropping up among them, seeking to lead people astray. They were luring them back into Judaism and away from Jesus. Or or they were luring them toward Roman mythology or emperor worship or whatever it may have been. Or they were distorting the, the, the faithful words that the apostles had carried on from Jesus and distorting them to serve their own purposes to perhaps enrich themselves or to gain a following for themselves. And so these false teachers were creeping into the church. There were then also the pressures from outside the church, persecutions, trials, hardships, tempting people to believe that it would just be easier to give up on Jesus than have to deal with the hardships, the suffering, the imprisonment, the, the, the uh, robbery of their property. Than following Jesus. It would just be easier to, to walk away and not have to deal with that kind of persecution. And so the author of Hebrews, knowing that that suffering was happening, that those temptations were occurring among God's people, wrote this letter to keep that from happening. And so you can hear his passion throughout the letter, pleading with believers to hold fast, to press on to maturity, to run the race that is set before them. You, you can find these passionate pleas throughout the letter in many different places. Even our passage for this morning, right, we, we just read it. It says there in verse 14, let us hold fast to our confession, And so, like I said, it's throughout Hebrews. Here's just a sampling of the places in Hebrews. And we've talked about this already many times, and we're only four chapters in. But I just want to remind us once again of this this theme of these passionate pleas of the author of Hebrews for us to keep going, to hold fast, to run the race. And so here it is, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Or Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. Or chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Or chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any, of you should, <clears throat> lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The passage we just read, chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Chapter 6, verse 18. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Chapter 10, 30, verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then finally, perhaps one of the most well-known passages of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, despised the cross and endured, sorry, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It is throughout Hebrews, and that's just, that's just a sampling. I could have read double that amount of passages of the author of Hebrews Calling us to persevere, to endure, to run the race, to hold fast to the confession and to the truth. And what I want you to see this morning is is how the author of Hebrews is going about calling us to do this. He's simply holding out Jesus to us, he's saying, look to Jesus. If you want to hold fast to your confession, if you want to run with endurance the race that is set before you, if you want to endure and persevere and not shrink back, what, what is it that you must do? And what he simply says is just look to Jesus. Just look to the glories of Jesus Christ that he's been unfolding for us throughout these four chapters and will continue to unfold for us throughout the the rest of the Bible. He's saying to us. He's greater than anything else this universe could possibly offer. What greater motivation do you need than to see the glories of Jesus Christ? What additional logic do I need to give you to convince you that you need to uh, persevere and pursue Christ? He's seeking to fill our minds with eternal truths that will sustain us and keep us even in our weakest moments. You know, it reminds me of the passage we went through as a church not long ago when we were wrapping up Ephesians. A very well-known passage if you were raised in church, Ephesians chapter 6, dealing with the armor of God. And if you remember, there in the armor of God, it calls on us to take up the shield of faith with which we can't extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. So we, we take up the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming arrows, or some translations, the, the flaming darts of the evil one. And so, so what the book of Hebrews is doing to, to put these analogies together is it's, it's helping us build our shield of faith, right? What is it that we're believing in? What is it we're trusting in? What is it we are having faith in that extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil ones? Well, it's the glories of Jesus Christ, And what he has done and what he's accomplished for us. The the book of Hebrews is forging our shield and preparing us to hold it up. To put to death all the temptations that Satan wants to bring our way. This is precisely what the author of Hebrews is doing for us. Right here in these three verses. Chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. You see there the the main uh, command there in verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. We have to hold fast to the truth so that we can then, verse 16, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's that's the order that the author of Hebrews is giving us here, right? We we hold fast to our confession, to the truth of who Christ is, and then as a result of that, verse 16, we can then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So we have to fill our minds with the truth of who Christ is, and then based on that truth of who Christ is, we are then able to draw near to him with confidence. So that's what the author of Hebrews wants to show us this morning. Now he's going to give us, He's he's giving us two truths that he wants us to to cling to, that he wants us to hold fast to. There before the the command, let us hold fast our confession, he gives us truth number one, then after truth number two, and then based on those truths, he wants us with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. So so what we're going to do is look at the two truths that the author of Hebrews wants us to cling to, to hold fast to, and then we're going to see the outcome of those truths, which is, We are to draw near to Jesus with confidence. So so here are the two truths. We're going to look at the two truths first, and then we will conclude by looking at our response, our drawing near to Christ based on those truths. So truth number one, you can see it right there in verse 14. Jesus is our great high priest who passed through the heavens. And truth number two, Jesus is a high priest who is able to sympathize with, With our weakness. He's a high priest who's passed through the heavens, number one. Number two, he is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. So let's look there at truth number one. He is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Like I said, you can see it right there in verse 14. But let's first be sure we see the structure of verses 14 and 15 and exactly what it is the author of Hebrews is saying to us. So, so notice with me, verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest. So so because we have a great high priest, what are we supposed to do because we have this great high priest? We are supposed to hold fast to our confession. And then verse 15 is giving another reason why we hold fast to our confession, right? Do you see that? Hold fast. To our confession for or because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So, so right there, I'm just saying what the text is saying are the, the two reasons why we must hold fast to our confession. And the first truth we're looking at, it is because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, namely Jesus, the Son of God. So why is that a truth worth holding on to? That Jesus is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Why is that a truth that should sustain us and motivate us to continue to persevere and to hold fast to our confession? Well, well it's, a, it's a glorious phrase for a number of reasons. But, but the first reason would be, notice what it says. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Right? Think about that for a minute. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came and took on flesh, lived among us, laid down his life on the cross, taking the wrath of God on himself, suffered and died, was put in the ground, left for dead, victoriously rose from the grave. But not only that, he ascended, he passed through the heavens. And he now sits at the Father's right hand. This is our great high priest. He's no ordinary man. It's no ordinary high priest. It is a high priest who's made it victoriously over sin and death. The grave cannot hold him and he's seated at the Father's right hand. That's your great high priest. How is that not encouraging to you this morning? How does that not help us hold fast to our confession that our priest is sitting down next to the Father? He is the victorious one. Now, the author of Hebrews, as you're going to see next week and in the weeks to come, he's going to spend a lot of time unpacking what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. So I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves this morning because there's a lot, a lot more that the author of Hebrews wants to say about the role of Jesus as our high priest. But but at a minimum, I I just want to remind you, that earthly priest under, under the Old Testament law, right? they were only allowed to enter, only they were only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Nobody else could. And they could only do it once a year. And they went in with trembling and fear. right? They had to make preparations to be sure there was a way they could get them out if they fell dead while they were in there because nobody else could go in to get them out. Right? They had to be sure they had some way to rescue them. Right? It was a serious thing. One person, once a year, that was allowed to go in. And yet now what the author of Hebrews is saying to us is that we have a high priest who doesn't go into some physical symbolic space. No, we have a high priest who has entered into the heavenly places who has gone to the holiest of holies, and he is there forever at the Father's right hand, interceding for you and interceding for me and advocating on our behalf. He has overcome every barrier that could possibly stand in our way. He he ripped the curtain, right, of the temple in two that separated us from the Holy of Holies. There is no more division because our great priest is there. He has arrived and he will always be there for us. You see, that's what the author is pointing us to when he says that Jesus has passed through the heavens. As our priest, he has gone before us. He has paved the way so that we too can one day join him for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, I go to do what? Prepare a place for you. He's already there. He's making it ready. He's getting ready for you and for me. Therefore, we have every reason to hold fast to this confession it sustains us. It keeps us knowing that our eternal high priest has continual unbroken access to the Father where he advocates for us and intercedes for us and prepares a place for us. And he pleads his perfect sacrificial blood that he shed on our behalf before the Father. So he is a great high priest who is pass through the heavens. And it is to that that we should be motivated to hold fast and not let go of it. But here's, here's the second truth. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Look there at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So it's interesting that the author of Hebrews put verse 15 in the negative, right? He doesn't say we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. Look, well, what does he say in verse 15? We do not have a high priest who is Unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So so why did he put it in the negative? Well, it's somewhat speculation, but it seems that the reason probably is because he was addressing something that was stirring around in the church. Some untruth that was taking hold in the church that somehow... Like we, we can't really come to Christ because he, he can't understand how much of a struggle it is for us. That he can't sympathize toward us. It seems that maybe that false teaching had been spreading among the, the Hebrew people. That, that some cynics were trying to say that there's no way Jesus could understand the difficulties and the struggles of the human condition. And therefore, how can we come to him with confession? And how can we come to him with our sins? How can we come before the perfect divine Son of God who is a, a, a perfection and purity and holiness? And surely he will be ready at a moment's notice to strike us down in this holiness and righteousness. And the author of Hebrews says nothing could be further from the truth. We, we don't have a high priest like that. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. Instead, he has some really good news for us, which is that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. And because of that, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and even has been tempted as we are, yet with an important qualification without sin. Now, was Jesus sinless? Yes, absolutely, right? It makes clear he was without sin. But does that mean that he can't understand our struggles and our battles against sin and our battle and pursuit of holiness? Does it mean he cannot relate to us at all? No, and that's what the author wants to clarify, that Jesus can both be sinless and perfectly sympathize with us in the midst of our weaknesses. Right. What, what, what more could you and I ask for? To have a sinless sacrifice to go before us, the only person in the entire universe who would be worthy to lay down his life for us in our place, and yet he is also able to be a sympathetic high priest to our weaknesses and to the temptations that are caused by them. You see, when this passage mentions weaknesses, it doesn't just mean sin struggles. It means just the general weakness and frailty that happens when you're in the human condition, that if we're not careful can lead us toward sin. Just normal everyday struggles that we have. For example, Jesus knew what it meant to be hungry. Right, he he got hungry just like you and I get hungry. And I don't know about you, but when I get really hungry, I get cranky. Right, I get irritable, and I'm tempted to be to be uh, uh, have a short fuse with people around me and to not be patient, to not treat people with respect and love and patience like we ought to do. Jesus knew what it was like to experience hunger, right, and to be tempted in that way. Jesus knew what it was like to be exhausted and tired, right? Jesus was asleep in a boat that was being rocked by hurricane force winds, right? That's tired, right? that's exhausted and it wasn't because he simply knew everything was under control though that certainly was true right i don't care what kind of human you are if a boat is being rocked around by hurricane force winds and waves you're not going to sleep through it unless you are absolutely worn out right there were times when jesus was so tired he had to he had to get away from the crowds he had to sleep not, again, I don't know about you, but when I get tired, I'm not a pleasant person to be around. <laughs> right? I'm irritable, cranky, again, similar to hungry. Right? You, you just, you, sometimes you just don't deal with people you ought to, the way you ought to. Jesus experienced sinus infections and sore throats. Right? He, he knew what it was like to be sick. You know, often we think of him as some kind of superhuman who didn't deal with the weaknesses of humanity. But when we say he was 100% man, we mean it. Right? It's what, I've said this before to people. Like, Jesus woke up with bedhead and drool on his pillow. Right? He was a human. And because of that, because of that, he is able to sympathize With our weaknesses, Jesus even faced right his his best friends right that he spent three years with. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Right in his most difficult days, they left him. They abandoned him. So he knows what it's like to be abandoned and hurt by those closest to him. But he never gave in to sin. He never became bitter. He never never questioned the Father's faithfulness to him. He never grumbled. He never complained. But Satan continually threw everything at him to tempt him to try and woo him towards sin. And he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be offer material wealth and power and prestige when he was at his lowest point, right? When he was in the wilderness for 40 days without food and Satan comes along and tempts him to prove who he really is. And Satan offers him, right, the world and kingdoms. And Jesus rejects him and says, no, I'm not giving in to what you have to offer. I'm trusting in my Father. So he understands what it's like when you're at a low point, when you're struggling financially, and it would just be easier to cheat on your taxes and lie or, or do something just a little shady just to get ahead a little bit. Right? He's faced the temptations that you and I face. And when we feel ourselves growing irritable, when we feel ourselves... Uh, 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 complaining and groaning, welling up within us, when we find it tempting to, to cheat on our taxes because of financial struggles or whatever it may be, what this passage is saying to us is that we can come to Jesus and we can say to him, I know you face these kinds of temptations too. I need your help. I know you understand what it's like to deal with the weakness of the human condition. And I know, Jesus, that you stood firm and you didn't give in. So can you give me the strength to do the same? Will you help me in the midst of my weaknesses and the temptations that are being thrown at me by this world? You see, we have to hold to both of these truths firmly I love what seems to be a contrast here, but is the beauty that is contained in the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the glorious, other than us, divine son of God who is able to rise from the grave and defeat death and pass through the heavens and sit at the Father's right hand, right? That's the glories of Jesus Christ. He is other than us. And yet at the same time, he is a priest who took on flesh and dwelt among us, and knows exactly what it's like to be a weak, frail man. Only Jesus, friends. Only Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews says to us, we've we've got to hold on to this. We can't let go of these truths that, that we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, who's victorious over sin and death that is sitting at the Father's right hand and we cannot let go of the truth that he has come and he dwelt among us and he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses and in our struggles because he didn't give in to them like we do every day and like we're tempted to do every day. And you see the author of Hebrews says when we hold firmly to these truths, it then leads us, it leads us to with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So here's the response to these two truths, right? Here's the response to the truth that Jesus has passed through the heavens. He's seated at the Father's right hand. And the response to the truth that he's a priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Here is how we are to respond. We can draw near to Christ with confidence this morning right what glorious good news that is for us now what does it mean right here's the here's the response we we can draw near with confidence what does it mean to draw near with confidence because I want to be sure that we don't misunderstand this, because in our modern culture, it would be so easy to misunderstand what the author of Hebrews is saying here, because in every other context that I can think of, when you are told to do something with confidence, it means find confidence in yourself. Right? When you go in for that job interview and they, they say to you, you got to go in with confidence, right? You got to put your best foot forward. You have to be sure of your skills and your capabilities when you go into that interview, right? You got to be confident in who, in yourself. In fact, I, I wasn't going to share this, but I'm going to anyway. Early, early in my ministry, uh, I was interviewing with with a church, and um, they asked, "What what What are some of your weaknesses?" And I don't know what they were expecting, but you're asking a pastor who hopefully is seeking to be obedient to God's word, was like, he's going to be honest with you. So I told them some of my weaknesses. And they kind of like looked at me like, we were just kidding. It's, they literally responded that way. They're like, we didn't really, we were just joking around. And I thought, well, you shouldn't be, right? I mean, let's, let's probe the heart of the man you're asking to come and lead you. I wouldn't trust a pastor who isn't willing to admit to having weaknesses. But look, here's the reality, right? We go into interviews and we're told you got to be confident, right? You got to be confident in yourself. Or what do we tell athletes, right? Who, when they're going into whatever, a football game, basketball game, hockey game, you you hear it all the time. What's one of the most important things? You got to be confident in your abilities. You got to be confident to take the shot. You got to be confident to catch the ball or to make the pass. Right? You you got to have self-confidence when you're going to take that test in school. What's one of the most important things? Right? Study hard, but also be confident. Right? Be be ready to go. Right? Everything we're taught is to be confident in yourself. And I fear that when we read a passage like this that tells us that we're commanded to with confidence draw near, that we think somehow the author of Hebrews is saying, find confidence in yourself to come before Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth. What the author of Hebrews means is, because of who Jesus is, you can be confident in him. You can be confident in your great high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's there, right? He is, he's there. You can be confident in your high priest who knows exactly what it's like to struggle with sin, but but never gave in to sin, sorry, not struggle with sin, struggle with temptation to sin, but never once gave in to it. You can be confident in him. I mean, just look at the rest of verse 16, Right, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's not what you if you're going to the to Jesus with confidence, then you don't need mercy, then you don't need grace, then you don't need help if you already have confidence in yourself. No, this is saying come before him with weakness, knowing you should have no internal confidence. But the confidence you find is that Jesus will be full of grace. He'll be full of mercy. And he is ready, right? Isn't that a glorious truth, right? He, he's ready to help you when you're needy, not when you're confident. It's not a confidence in ourselves that motivates us to draw near to Jesus. We don't have to wonder. The author of Hebrews is telling us we don't have to wonder how Jesus is going to respond we can have every confidence that he will respond with mercy, with grace, and with help. I'll I'll never forget my my brother. I didn't ask him for permission to share this, so Matthew, sorry. I'll never forget my my brother with, uh, when he got his first, and to my knowledge, only speeding ticket when we were in high school. He's two years older than me, and it's his senior year, and we wrapped up with basketball practice, and we needed to take a friend of ours, a teammate, home, and so we piled into the car. We're taking him home. It was, you know, fairly late, I guess. I don't know, and uh, he's in a hurry, and so he was speeding down the road, and we saw those right blue lights flashing in your window, and he gets pulled over, and he gets a fairly significant ticket, and we kind of just, you know, ride in silence the rest of the way. There's... (laughs) not much to say, and um, we get home. And at that point, he had the decision to make, right? It's a decision that most of us who, uh, not not everyone, but if you were in a home with two parents, then many of you have faced this decision, right? Which parent do you break the news to? <laughs> right? Who, who do you go to? All right, we run all kinds of calculations in our mind, right? Who's going to show us the most mercy, Right? <laughs> Who's going to be the most full of grace in that moment? And to this day, my brother will tell you that he made the wrong read that night. (laughs) Right? So he, for whatever reason, he should have asked for my advice. I would have told him differently. Right? But, But he makes the read that our dad is going to be the merciful one. And so he breaks the news to him. And let's just say his confidence was in the wrong person. And we were reminded of that every day for a few weeks when his senior year, we had to be dropped off at school and wait in the pickup line for the carpool to be picked up from school because he wasn't allowed to drive for quite a while. You know what that's like, right? You've, you've probably been there or in a situation like that, whether it was a parent or even a supervisor or something else or a teacher or whatever it may have been. You're, you're hoping the person that you're coming to is going to choose mercy Instead of judgment, but you never know for sure. But with Jesus, when we come to Him in faith, it's always mercy. It's always mercy, right? That's what verse uh, verse sixteen is saying to us this morning. That we can have every confidence. That when we draw near to Jesus, we are drawing near to a throne of grace. Isn't that a beautiful image, friends? It's a throne of grace. Now, make no mistake about it. There will be a throne of judgment in the end of days. Jesus is a judge. There's no question about it. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, right? He is... Jesus is majestic and powerful and worthy of more praise than the universe can even begin to offer, right? He is the perfect righteous judge, yet, yet he has promised us because of his life and his death and his resurrection in our place that when those who are his children, who belong to him, who come to him in faith, depending and leaning on the cross, when we come to him, he has nothing but grace and mercy and help to offer us. But there will be a day when that time has passed, which is why the author of Hebrews says, today, don't harden your hearts. Today, come to him in faith. Today, don't wait till the end of days when he comes as judge. Do it now. Turn to him in faith when you can come before the throne of grace and mercy. I mean, this this picture of Jesus is the exact opposite of how God's people responded to God on Mount Sinai. Right, you have this, uh, this narrative taking place in Exodus 19 and 20 and God calls Moses to go up on the mountain and he's going to deliver the law and he makes clear that the people are to come to the foot of the mountain and he gives some rules about not to cross certain lines but they're supposed to approach the mountain. Now there's some debate about whether or not uh, the people were supposed to eventually come up on the mountain with Moses. But regardless of whether you think they were to come to the foot of the mountain and not go any further up on the mountain, regardless, what ends up happening is they stand far off. Listen to Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You see, they couldn't comprehend that the holiness of God is also joined with compassion and with mercy, and so they stood far off. But what glorious privilege we have to see in the person of Jesus Christ that God wants us to draw near and to not stand far off. He wants us to draw near with confidence in him. In our time of need, he's ready to pour out help to us. In our time of need, the author of Hebrews is telling us that we can have every confidence that Jesus is ready to be merciful and filled with grace and, and ready to help. And that's what you're going to fear when you draw near to Christ. It's why Matthew twelve twenty says of Jesus, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. You come to Jesus with your bruises and your brokenness and his goal is not to beat you down and make you worse. No, his goal is to restore you and to make you whole. And when you come to him as a smoldering wick with just barely an ember of flame left in you, his goal is not to squeeze you between his two fingers and take all the oxygen out of you and to put you out. No, his goal is to to gently blow the oxygen of his life back into you, that that smoldering wick may erupt into a flame once again. This is the merciful and compassionate high priest, Jesus Christ, that calls us to come to us. His goal is not to crush us, but to help us and to show his mercy. And the greatest evidence. And the only evidence ultimately that we need that He is ready to pour out mercy and grace on us, that He is ready to help us in our time of need, is the cross of Jesus Christ, right? How can we question whether or not He's ready to be merciful to us when He's already been willing to humble Himself and to take on flesh and to spill His blood and to have His body broken and to take on the wrath of God the Father in our place, to suffer on the cross in His death, right? If he's willing to do that, how dare we question if he wants to show us grace and mercy or not? Right? It's the exact argument that Paul is making in Romans eight thirty two, When he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's given you Jesus. On the cross, Jesus laid down his life for you. What greater evidence do you need that he wants to be merciful toward you? That's what the cross is calling us to. And that's what this passage is calling us to. Because of the cross, Jesus has become our great high priest. And he's passed through the heavens and he sits at the Father's right hand. He intercedes for us. He is our high priest who has made it. He is there. He is the victorious one. And he is also a sympathetic and understanding high priest who is ready and willing to deal with you and your weaknesses. And because of that, he is on the edge of his seat, ready to be merciful and full of grace and to pour out help on you in your time of need. That's the call to us this morning. Don't run from Jesus at your lowest point, at your, most, at your point of most shame and most guilt and try to hide from him. No, turn toward him and find confidence in him and not in yourself. And there will be mercy and compassion waiting for you at the feet of the throne of grace. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the truth of your word. Father, we... Passages like this, Father, just remind me of the evidence of the truth of your word. We, we would never come up with a God like this. With a merciful and compassionate God who's willing to, to take on flesh and to deal with the weaknesses and frailty of humanity and yet to, to never sin, to, to never give in to the, to the relentless temptation being thrown at him. And because of that, he can fully sympathize with our weaknesses. And even as he laid down his life on the cross, suffered in our place, he, he victoriously rose from the grave and he did not run away from us or, or, or escape us or somehow disconnect himself from us. No, he, he passed through the heavens. He sits at your right hand, but even sitting at your right hand, he is ready and willing to sympathize with us. And so, Father, I just pray that you would fill us with these truths this morning, that you would fill us with this understanding of the reality of the glorious victory of Jesus Christ and yet also the the humble, sympathetic high priest that he is for us. And based on those realities, Father, I pray that you would cause us to draw near to Jesus in our time of need and that we would find help, mercy, and grace. May that spirit fill this church and fill your people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.